We signed on the air in New York, a brand new radio station, a little bitty radio station that uh, wanted to go from worst to first. So the next morning, I get up, I go to work. He just went nuts. I don't say a word to the members of the zoo. Long about 8 o'clock, I pull out that Associated Press list of radio stations. It's rolled up. I unroll it like this, all the way down to the ground, and I'm going to read them on the air. He was reaming out the entire team. You know, this is not working. You, you, this, we're, we got to raise our game. We might as well just pack up our things and leave and let the station go to dead air. I started reading from number one. And I get down to 20, I said, no Z100, and guess what? We're number 51. I came here from Tampa, Florida to build a great radio station, and guess what? We suck. In the background, you hear the little Saturday Night Live Debbie Downer sound effects. I almost fell out of my chair. No one ever says that. No one ever says you're doing poorly in radio. We are going to build a great radio station, and I'm talking to you, the listeners. You have to get on board and help us. He recruited the audience to build our audience. You know, that's a genius. Scott said, send in your name and the name of 25 of your friends that you have turned on to Z100. Let people know that this station is on. Take out an old sheet, get a magic marker, write Z100 on it, and hang it out your window in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Staten Island, Long Island, wherever you are. We need your help. Z100, New York. Well, Mitchell Stewart, the man behind this awesome documentary on the rise of the legendary Z100 station. Sir, thank you for the time. We just checked out the trailer, some of the footage there. It looks awesome. Of course, at the time we're recording this, it is dropping February 11th video on demand. How did this concept come about and what made you decide this year? You know what? It's a good time to tell the real story about Z100. Well, first, Fred, thank you for having me. I appreciate being on your show. Um, you know, there's so many, I was asked to do this pre-COVID, okay? But even then, you know, what attracts me as a documentarian are the David or Davida versus Goliath stories, you know? And, you know, when people meet Z100 now, they see the world's biggest station, you know? But it wasn't always like that. And so to have such a big story that you could tell in a personal way about this group of, you know, I couldn't end up calling them misfits that fit, but, you know, they were like the bands I was in, you know, like, like, how do these people even fit? But somehow they do. And yet, you know, they conquered New York and they conquered radio. So um, to me, once I was offered the opportunity to do the film, I wasn't going to let anyone else do it. I mean, I'm from Brooklyn, so don't get me into my way. You know, and it, it was it was just a great feel good story, you know, and so I had no choice but to tell it and it hopefully inspires other people. And how did Z100 first come into your life? What was your earliest memory of, of this legendary station? So, OK, when the golden age of Z100, I was a punk playing in every punk club. And my goal was as a musician I was going to be a filmmaker, but not quite yet. You know, I was telling my stories through bands and very esoteric music and, if, and, and really hard, hard in your face and rhythmic music. And if I got 25 people in the audience, I was really happy. And then eventually we got like a hundred and then we got more. It was like, whoa. So the last thing that I would think about is Scott Shannon and pop radio. 
And because it just didn't, wasn't in my, my world that I was considering ever getting to. That wasn't representative of success. Success was, you know, earning an audience and, 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 and earning an audience through telling the truth in music. So then when I became a filmmaker and I was starting to have some success, um, I got a call from a friend of mine, uh, Don McLeod, who had been tracking my career and he was working at then Clear Channel. And he said, hey, um, have a friend. And when I came into Z100 world as, as our agency it was like 2003, and people don't remember, they were back in the worst position. You know, Scott had left and they hit a very fallow period. So I said, Z100, I don't, do I want to do it? And they said, hey, you get to go backstage at the garden. And I go, okay. And, you know, they, they didn't have that much money. I ended up, you know, losing $1,000. So, you know, I went to my wife and said, can we do this? And it was like, why are you asking? You know, you're going to do it. So, you know, come on. Any, anyone that grew up in New York is going to go backstage at the garden. So we went backstage at the garden uh, to do a Z100's Jingle Ball. And the punk in me was so shocked to find out that the people at Z100 were these then, were these amazing music people who cared so much about music, you know, because you think it's a corporation. Well, corporations made up of people, right? And these people wanted to be there and loved it. And that was inspiring. And, you know, they were on hired times and they said, hey, do you do commercials? And I said, yeah, before 9-11, I've done a lot, but not since. And so it was the right place, right time. And they said, what would you do for us? And literally it popped in my head. I said, meet me in Times Square tomorrow. And, you know, I want to bring Z100 back to, you know, my version of it was let's do these commercials in Times Square and just, you know, let's 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 reclaim New York. And, you know, God bless Tom Pullman and Sharon Daster and all those people. They took a chance, you know, on, on us. So, you know, I got to meet Z100 for the best reason, you know, to to reclaim, to help do my part to reclaim New York with people that love music. So, you know, that was my Z100 story, you know, and, and, and God bless, they brought me backstage at the garden a whole lot of times. <laughs> I can attest to somebody who's covered events at the garden being back. It's one thing to go as a fan, but being backstage is just like, it's, it's a totally different experience. Oh my God. There's nothing like it. And, you know, anyone could buy a ticket, you know, but to get backstage, you have to be invited, you know, think about that. So that, that to, uh, to me meant everything. And it hasn't changed to this day, by the way. Did you get to walk through the halls, see all like, kind of like the, the, yep. the, the pictures of like the, the different concerts and then legendary New York Knicks and Rangers? Absolutely. You know, every every time um, we would do a concert there because we did a series road to MSG, you know, which featured, first of all, it started again with Z100. Uh, but then we did a number of artists and events that took place. And to see the photos, you know, they they curate the photos to, you know, to, for the artist or the sports event and to see these photos. I mean, that's your life up there. You know, you, you remember seeing these things as a kid. So it's it's a remarkable place and still is. I mean, it's the Mecca. Now, you've had a lot of experience in film, obviously, in an acclaimed career. You've worked with some huge acts. I mean, from Lady Gaga, Earth, Wind, Fire, Jay-Z, Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, Katy Perry. I could, I could go on all day and night. I won't. Uh, but how did those experiences differ from the making of this documentary? I would, I would assume that that has helped you up to this point, but... Were there any challenges that you faced making a production like this? You know, yes. And we'll, we'll talk about the COVID of it all in a, in a minute, because um, that was that was unusual. But when I first 
started working with the station and word spread about me to other stations, I got to interview and work with um, more than a hundred artists, you know, and, and being a musician myself and my personality is, you know, I'm not walking in and being someone else. I'm going to be me. Um, and fortunately, the generosity of these artists recognized me also as someone who cared about music and was a musician and loved music. So there was a common denominator with all of them. Um, from interviewing Lady Gaga the first time I met her, she was 22. You know, she was about to go on stage at Jingle Ball, you know, be the opening act. And, and she was starting to get notoriety. But meeting her and talking about love of music and, and what particularly Z100 meant to her as a kid, um, really it was the connection. So that ability to do so many interviews over and 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 do a live music show also strip raw and real which they gave me the benefit of doing which I did for a, almost 100 episodes is you got to meet the musicians where they were and you got to meet the artists where you were cuz my style was always taking them back to why they first wanted to do this not that successful person that we're meeting now but lady gaga at 22 why are you doing this what drives you and that's my style you know, you go back to the beginning and, you, you know, because people don't change. They just achieve their dreams and get bigger dreams sometimes or sometimes they're living that dream. So I always like to connect emotionally with anybody. So when it came, when the opportunity came to do this film, you know, I took that knowledge and experience and I applied it to some new people. And, you know, so I had never met Scott. I didn't really know who he was. Um, in fact, even though we worked with Z100 for a while and they were like the Yankees to me, sorry if you're a Met fan, but it was like, whoa, hey. But meeting Scott, I, doing this doc, I hadn't, didn't know that he created Z100 and I didn't know his story, you know? So as a documentarian looking for big stories, but telling them through the eyes of an individual, a small way, you know, Scott was the perfect subject for me, you know, because he came from, I don't know, he came from Tampa, you know, um, this, this, this hillbilly, they called him and George Maxine, who was the God of interviewers, you know, said, I hope you got a one way ticket because we're going to kick you out of town and to come with, with the chutzpah and, you know, that drive and that self-belief and surround yourself not with famous people to be on your, your zoo crew, but to be with interesting people who knew stuff he didn't know and to put it out there, you know, that's, that's like a quintessential New York story, isn't it? Most of us in the New York area, like myself, I grew up listening to Z100, listening to the Z Morning Zoo. And it's, it's just kind of been an institution you know, for my age, like since, since I've been born, but you don't realize like, wow, okay, this was at rock bottom at one point and, and picked back up. So yeah, I mean, listening to Scott Shannon's story is absolutely incredible. I, I got to bring up one thing that was featured in the promotional clip you guys released sure. about Madonna. You talk about like, mm -hmm. how people started everything. I did not realize prior to watching his documentary that Madonna had been hitting up Z100 left and right almost every single day to the point where she literally showed up to the studio one day and Scott Shannon was like, okay, you know what? We'll play this record, but promise us that you'll stay home next week. And well, the rest is history. One of the brilliant things about Scott Shannon and the Morning Zoo was his ability to ferret out of pop culture what was the hippest thing happening. He saw where the trends were. One day, our music director came in and said, there's a lady 
out front who won't go away. She comes every Tuesday, and she insists that we have to play her record. I quizzed him. I said, is anybody else playing it? No, no, but she says it's big in the clubs. I said, well, well this isn't a club. It's a radio station. He said, she's very insistent. She wants to see you now. She would say to Scott that if you play my music now, I will do something special for Z100 when I'm a star. So I said to her, I said, if we play your record at night a couple of times, will you stay home next week? You don't have to come back, right? She said, right. And she said, I promise I'll make it up to you. Now that particular song was called Holiday. We put it on at night. It got a couple of phone calls. I think it was her calling. And, and so we moved it to daytime, and it became a pretty big hit for us. Madonna decided to be a movie star. Well, the soundtrack, obviously. The name of the movie and the name of the single was Who's That Girl? We make a deal with Madonna that the world premiere of the movie in Times Square will air on Z100 Live. That was about the third story that Scott told me when we were first discussing making what now became worse the first, because there was a number of possible stories that I, that could be told about Z100. But the focusing on those 74 days, that's the story that no one else could tell. And he told the story of Madonna, and it was like, well, that has to be in the film, and we have to find a moment. And he talked about Times Square. And, he, and so he and Steve Kingston tell the story quite well. Um, and then we were able to, and one of my, I had a great team researching, but it was one of those moments at three o'clock in the morning when I was finding, you know, looking for myself to find the footage shot by somebody, you know, and we try to track the person down. There's no way to be found. And, and, and it's like to see that and to see what it meant to her, you know, really connected the dots because this is an against all odds story. That's what I wanted to tell. So as you correctly said, whether it's Scott telling, you know, going up against the, 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 the icons of the industry then in an oversaturated marketplace and try to find his space or Madonna to come from Michigan and say, I'm going to make it no matter what. I mean, that's, or Lady Gaga, when I met her, I'm going to make it no matter what. I mean, these are the stories that have to be told. And these are the stories that have to be told, particularly in this era, you know, post COVID, you know, it's easy to tell a, a, a negative story. I'm not attracted to those stories. I'm attracted to like the against all odds stories that show that you can get from here to there. Because, you know, God bless my parents, but I came from nowhere and, and got a little bit somewhere. And I want other people to be inspired, you know, and, and that's what we try to tell in our stories, in our films. So, you know, a whole lot of people, but were there some that were a little bit tough to crack or open up? It's a great question. Um, COVID, we started pre-COVID and people were very open to being in it. You have to understand when you're going to interview someone like Clive Davis, right? Who's got 9 million things on his calendar. You have to come in and be very prepared. You know, I usually start with people with like a warm up something because that's my personality. Well, you have to come, but you have to be very prepared to go there quickly. And with, with some of the people, and we'll just mention uh, Clive Davis, is you have to get to the point you know, out of respect for their time. And when you're dealing with somebody like Bon Jovi, John Bon Jovi, I mean, their time is so precious and they're giving it to you. So you have to come in um, as, a, as an interviewer and show respect for their time by telling them that you've done your research 
and you're asking real questions. Then the funny thing is they give you more time, you know? So that was the pre-COVID story. Then COVID, 30% of the movie was made when I was upstate in the Catskills on Zoom with local crews, or in the case of Nile Rogers, um, you know, we did a Zoom interview that we that that our team at my company, HU Creative, Alex Deljanko, big shout out. He spent, you know, two months color correcting this film because it was shot by so many different people. Our DP, John Cola Serrano, you know, is amazing. But then we had these other teams and we had to make it look like a cohesive film. That's a whole other level of challenge. Um, as a director doing it on Zoom, that's a whole other level of challenge because I like intimate moments. And um, we managed to achieve that. And it's the credit of the artist as well, um, because when we were talking to a medium for the first time, we still connected, you know, because they were so open and trusting. And, and um, it was a remarkable journey. I learned so much, not just about Scott's story, but how to be a filmmaker in this era, you know, because you have to adapt in order to tell your story. Speaking of adapting, right? It's very interesting. We're conducting this interview in 2022. There are probably kids out there that don't listen to Morning Zoo, or if they do, they listen to it via you know podcast, you know, online on their it, phone. <laughs> yeah, on their phone. It's it's a totally different world. Even me, like I'm, you know, I, I love the radio, but I, I don't listen to it as much now that I'm not commuting, right. you know, working remotely these days. Where do you see the future of Z100 and radio going in say five to ten years? Well. It's it's already there, you know, um, Z100, I can't speak for Z100, I can tell you what I saw when I was there is, you know, I got hired to be on the original team, you know, to create content for what became iHeart, you know, so they're always thinking forward. And it's it whether it's Bob Pittman and John Sykes and Tom Pullman, they're always thinking about its content. How can we expand our content to get it in the ears and eyes of people. So I think they're there and, I, and they're, they're in podcasting, they're, they're wherever they need to be, that they have cemented their position to remain important as media continues to evolve. So, you know, I give them a lot of credit because they're not self-satisfied. They're always looking for the next thing. And, you know, music, you know, there's a reason that music is banned in, in places where freedom is banned because music is emotional. And Scott Shannon and the story of Worst of First Z100, the true story of Z100, it's about Scott getting really, why was he so successful? Because he played all types of music. It just had to be hits. You could have... Um, it made it in. It's it made it in the bonus footage that Nile Rogers calls less dance, which is Nile Rogers' funky guitar. Stevie Ray Vaughan, the first time you're exposed to him with with Albert King blues guitar, he said that was the quintessential Z100 song because you could dance to it. It was commercial and yet it was really different for the time. And when he said that, it was like it was it was just such an aha moment for me because he wanted his music to cross over. It didn't represent the punk in me selling out. It represented getting his art form exposed to as many people as possible to inspire them to listen and to dance. And that's what we all want to do, isn't it? 
Definitely. And, if, and of course, worst to first, the true story of Z100 New York. You can check it out. Video on demand starting February 11th. Before I let you go, you've been very gracious with your time. We always like to ask all our guests some kind of random rapid fire questions sure. just to get to know them better. Are you ready? Fire away. Favorite New York restaurant? <laughs> uh, locally, well, I have to go back to my roots in Chinatown. And amongst my favorites is Wo Hop, underground only. Um, that would be across the street, Peking Duck House is clearly one of them. And then my personal favorite restaurant, bar none, bar none is John's of 12th Street. Um, it's more than 100 years old. It was owned by Lucky Luciano back in the days. And, was a, and it is the quintessential Italian restaurant. So John's of 12th Street off the Bowery. Awesome. Besides Scott Shannon, who was your favorite subject to interview? If you could narrow it down to maybe one more, like an honorable mention. An honorable mention. So I won't mention the people that I knew before, because that's not fair, because you had a, and a number of them I had interviewed before. And Nile Rogers, because I never had met him. It was over Zoom. So we weren't in the room together. And yet we were in the room together. And I think that we were supposed to do it for 30 minutes. And we ended up talking for over an hour. Wow. And it was remarkable. So for no other reason but that. And though I had, you know, maybe tied honorable mention is, is John Bon Jovi because I had he had appeared on strip and I interviewed him for a charity that we were working on and that he was part of. And when he came in, you know, he didn't come in with a guitar. So I got to meet the person for the for really the first time, not the musician playing a song and talking about music and talking about that first time you heard it's the opening line of the movie. It's talking about, you know, the first time you heard your song on the radio. So for different reasons, you know, Nile Rogers certainly and John Bon Jovi. Was there a film or some type of production that drew you into filmmaking? Spaghetti Westerns, Chop Saki movies. I used to cut school and go to Times Square and that was it. You know, I, I know... In my personal collection, I had about 900 Chop Saki movies and every Spaghetti Western movie ever made. So, um, and those movies that were all made on a no budget, right? But they were great stories. And, you know, they moved me. You know, they were, they're speaking to, it was like, I'm not surprised Marvel's so big because when I was um, a very awkward teenager, I mean, who spoke to me but Peter Parker? You know, these were stories of individuals that were all had an issue, right? But somehow told their own truths. And, you know, there's a heroic nature to, to all those films, you know, from, from Spaghetti Westerns and, you know, the antihero to the samurai movies or Chopsaki movies. You know, there's a certain honor, honorableness to it, or certainly Peter Parker, for sure, that that drew me into storytelling and, you know, both in music and, and I got to score the film and, and, and write music for it, but also in the films that I want to continue to make, be, be it documentary or narratives, you know, you want to tell these like cool stories, you know, and, and hopefully do it in a way that people, you know, enjoy them or learn from them. I got to ask in the broadcast version of this interview in the background, you've got a number of guitars or there's all yours. Is there a story to them? Can you, can you briefly explain? Yeah, I'm not a collector. I played all of those guitars and still do. So if I lean one way or the other, you see a dobro. And when I left, um, officially being a full-time musician, I wanted to like master that. And um, I've always been drawn to 
I've always lived in my head. Um, like I told you, the, 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 our house upstate, my wife and I own, were paid for by a script I wrote for a Chinese vampire movie in, in Asia. Um, I've always been drawn to faraway stories that are catapulting me someplace else other than where I grew up because it was just so violent outside my door. So each one of those guitars I've played somewhere or used to score a film. Um, the Stratocaster over this side is used a lot. Um, acoustic guitar that's over my shoulder this way or that way is being used. And, and my Fender bass is used in everything. So yeah, I've played all the guitars and, you know, so thank you for asking that question. I'm not just a hobbyist. It's like, it's my other, it's what drives me the blood through my veins, basically. Being a New York area based wrestling fan. I mean, we're, we're built different, right? You have Madison Square yeah. Garden, you have yep. the Meadowlands, I have the Barclays Center. We've seen some of the greatest matches and superstars of all time. How did wrestling come into your life? And who would you say is your all-time favorite wrestler? I was eight years old. Uh, my sister was many, many, many generations older than me. And when she first started dating her husband, they would go to see wrestling. And I would hear these stories. And it just always was, it was then a soap opera kind of a little bit to me. And it was appealing. And then I met this guy. <laughs> Um, who you might have heard of, uh, Paul Heyman. And it was, he came to this very apartment, you know, many, many years ago. And it was meeting Shakespeare of wrestling. Um, he, the quintessential storyteller, the quintessential marketer. And if you could see into his soul, he's just one of the kindest, nicest, just amazing person. And my, uh, my daughter at that point was probably six years old and Paul came to my house and I kind of told this story on his WWE doc and he came to my house. He was going to come to my house at 11 o'clock. That became 12 o'clock. I mean, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And then he finally showed up at two o'clock, but I was working in Asia. So I was up and it kind of told him I was a little off as well. And we were laughing so hard that my then our then daughter, six years old, shout out to Morgan, came out in her little onesie because we were laughing so hard and telling you stories, rubbed her eyes and looked at Paul in his ECW mode. So we're talking about grungy, long jacket, you know, looking kind of scary. And as I've said often, just saw the Jewish Santa Claus. She saw right into his soul. So Paul, you know, and, and through a partnership with Paul um, when, in looking for Larry, you know, I've gotten to learn so much about really what it takes to be in wrestling and, and have such respect for the people because they are the greatest stunt people in the world and they're doing it without any doubles and they're doing it without a safety net. And to see the elevated storytelling that they're doing now and to see the work that Paul does, uh, whether it was with Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar or CM Punk or whomever he's worked with, the Undertaker back in the day, you know, this is amazing storytelling. And if you want to talk about keeping up with technology, well, who's doing that better than the WWE? So you could learn a lot by watching them. And I do, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm greatly inspired. And if anyone has not gone to a wrestling match in their life, you know, when you go live, you don't hear the announcers, you don't need it. They're telling the story with their body language. So Chop sake, wrestling, you know, music, punk rock, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's influenced me. 
could you please kindly ask me where the film is available? Although you did give us a promo, but I just want to do it in true Paul Heyman style. Where can we find Worst to First, the true story of Z100 New York? Thank you so much for the time and being here. And Worst to First, the true story of Z100 New York. And as of this coming Friday, February 11th, it's available any and everywhere. You could download a film, rent or buy it. And I encourage everyone to go on IMDb and to go on Rotten Tomatoes because I'm interested to hear their opinions. I hope we entertain them. Hope they're a little bit inspired and learn a bit. And thank you so much for the time. It really was a pleasure.